far from the urban centers of the East Coast, far from the gold mines of the West Coast, and far from the Transcontinental Railroad dissecting the country, lies Sand Creek, Colorado. This small village has 800 Cheyenne Indians living in open grasslands. Their leader, Black Kettle. He had approached the United States Army, which was nearby, and sought protection for his people. On November 28, 1864, he was assured by the U.S. Army that his people would not be disturbed at Sand Creek, for the territory had been promised to the Cheyennes by an 1851 treaty. Welcome to another episode of Print the Legend, a podcast for AP U.S. history students where we look at the stories that made up America and the stories that America made up. I'm your host, Mr. Nasosi, and I'm so glad you're taking just a few moments to learn alongside with me today as we now look at part three of our three-part series on closing the frontier, Native Americans. On the morning of November 29th, a group called the Colorado Volunteers surrounded Sand Creek. In hope of diffusing the situation, the local chief, Black Kettle, raised an American flag as a sign of friendship. The volunteer's commander, Colonel John Shivington, ignored the gesture, shouting, kill and scalp all, big and little. With that, the regiment descended upon the village, killing about 400 people, most of whom were women and children. When word spread to other Indian communities, it was agreed that the whites must be met by force. Most instrumental in the retaliation were Sioux troops under the leadership of Red Cloud. In 1866, Sioux warriors ambushed the command of William J. Fetterman, whose troops were trying to complete the construction of the Bozeman Trail in Montana. Of Fetterman's 81 U.S. soldiers and settlers, there was not a single survivor, the bodies grotesquely mutilated. A stalemate has occurred. Red Cloud and the United States agreed to another treaty, the 1868 Treaty of Fort Laramie, which brought a temporary end to the hostilities. Large tracts of land were reaffirmed as Sioux and Cheyenne territories by the United States government were established, or re-established. Unfortunately, that peace was short-lived. Bonanza. Gold broke the delicate peace with the Sioux. In 1874, a scientific exploration group discovered precious metals in the heart of Black Hills, South Dakota. When word of the discovery of gold leaked, nothing could stop the masses of prospectors looking to get rich in places like Deadwood. And despite the treaty protections that awarded the land to the Sioux, Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse 
decided to take up arms to defend their dwindling land supply. Enter General George Armstrong Custer. Custer was perhaps the most flamboyant and brash officer in the United States Army. He was confident that his technologically superior troops could contain the Native American fighters. Custer and his soldiers felt that it was only a matter of time before the Indians would surrender and submit to a life on yet an even smaller reservation. Custer hoped to make this happen sooner rather than later. His orders were to locate the Sioux encampment in the Bighorn Mountains of Montana and trap them there until reinforcements arrived. But the prideful Custer sought to engage the Sioux on his own. On June 25th of 1876, he discovered a small Indian village on the banks of the Little Bighorn River. Custer confidently ordered his troops to attack, not realizing that he was confronting the main Sioux and Cheyenne encampment about 3,000 Sioux warriors led by Crazy Horse descended upon Custer's regiment and within hours the entire 7th Cavalry and General Custer were dead. The victory was brief for the Warring Sioux. The rest of the United States regulars arrived and chased the Sioux for the next several months even farther west. By October, much of the resistance had ended. Crazy Horse had surrendered, but Sitting Bull and a small band of warriors escaped to Canada. The newspapers called it Custer's Last Stand, and that caused massive debate in the East. Warhawks demanded an immediate increase in federal military spending and swift judgment for the non-compliant Sioux. Critics of the United States policy also made their opinions known. The most vocal detractor, Helen Hunt Jackson, published A Century of Dishonor in 1881. It was a blistering assault on the United States Indian policy and chronicled injustices towards Native Americans over the past hundred years. The year after Custer's infamous defeat, the Nez Perce Indians, or as the French trappers called the Nez Indians of Idaho, fell victim to more westward expansion. When gold was discovered on their lands in 1877, demands were made by the U.S. government for over 90% of their territory. After a standoff between tribal warriors and the United States Army, their leader, Chief Joseph, directed his followers toward Canada to avoid capture. It was there that he hoped to join forces with Sitting Bull and plan their next move.
Army officials chased the Nez Perce 1,700 miles across Idaho and western Montana. As they neared the border, the Army closed in and Chief Joseph was forced to surrender. The entire tribe was relocated to Oklahoma, where nearly half of them perished from disease and despair. I got a hundred and sixty acres in the valley Got a hundred and sixty acres of the best Got an old stove there that'll cook three squares And a bunk where I can lay me down to rest The last land to be claimed by homesteaders was in Oklahoma. Previously dubbed Indian Territory by the federal government, Oklahoma had been used as a state-sized reservation for many tribes, ranging from the Nez Perce in Idaho to the Cherokee of Georgia. Acres full of sunshine, got 160 million stars above, got an old paid In 1889, the United States government decided to open two million acres of land unassigned to any particular tribe for homesteaders. At noon on April 22, 1889, the land was legally open to claim under the provisions of the Homestead Act. Looking much like a Best Buy the day after Thanksgiving, thousands rushed across Oklahoma to grab a piece of the new land. Highlighted by a few gunshots, former Indian land was gobbled up in a matter of hours. And by nightfall, Oklahoma City qualified as a city of 10,000 inhabitants. Those who dared to stake a claim before it was legal were called Sooners, for they got there sooner than later. Successful homesteaders rested that night in a triumph, leaving the Indians of the area to despair over yet another grand theft. Faced with disease, alcoholism, and despair on the reservations, federal officials changed directions with the Dawes Act of 1887. Each Native American family was offered 160 acres of tribal land to own outright. Although the land could not be sold for 25 years, these new Native American landowners could farm it for profit like other farmers in the West. Land not allotted to individual landholders was sold to railroad companies and settlers from the East, and the proceeds were used to set up schools and teach the reading and writings of English to Native Americans. Native American children were required to attend the established reservation American schools. Failure to attend would result in a visit by a truant officer who could either enter the home unaccompanied by police to search for the absent student or remove them from the reservation outright. Some parents felt the need to resist white man education as a matter of honor. In addition to disregarding tribal languages and religions, schools often forced the pupils to dress like Americans. 
they were given shorter haircuts. Even the core of an individual Native American's identity, one's name, was changed to Americanize the children. Kill the Indian, spare the man. These practices often led to future tribal divisions. Each tribe had those who were friendly to American assistance and those who were hostile. Once friends turned to enemies. The Dawes Act was an unmitigated disaster for tribal units. In 1900, land held by Native American tribes was half of that in 1880. Land holdings continued to dwindle in the early 20th century. And finally, when the Dawes Act was repealed in 1934, alcoholism, poverty, illiteracy, and even suicide rates were higher for Native Americans than any other ethnic group in the United States. As America grew to the status of a world power, the first Americans were reduced to hopelessness. It was called the ghost dance by white soldiers who observed the new practice. Spreading rapidly across the continent, the ghost dance resulted in yet another human travesty. It all began in 1888 with a holy man called Wavoka. During a total eclipse of the sun, Wavoka received a message from the Creator. Soon, an Indian messiah would come down and the world would be free of the white man. The Indians could return to their once lived in lands and the buffalo could once again roam openly on the Great Plains. Wavoka even knew that all this would happen in the spring of 1891. He and his followers meditated. They had visions, they chanted, and performed what was known as the ghost dance. Soon the movement began to spread and before long the ghost dance and adherents and tribes throughout the South and the West were doing it daily and nightly. Although Wavoka preached nonviolence, whites feared that the movement would spark a great Indian rebellion. They did not like seeing this unified movement. Ghost dance followers seemed to be more defiant than any other Native Americans and the rituals seemed to be working its participants into a frenzy. All of this was disconcerting to the soldiers and the settlers throughout the South and the West. Something had to be done. Local residents of South Dakota demanded that the Sioux end the ritual of the dance. When they ignored this, the United States Army arrived. Fearing aggression, a group of 300 Sioux did leave the reservation. Army regulars believed them to be a hostile force preparing for attack. When the two sides came into contact, the Sioux reluctantly agreed to be transported to Wounded Knee Creek on the Pine Ridge Reservation. On the morning of December 29, 1890, the Army demanded the surrender of all Sioux weapons. Amid the attention, a shot rang out possibly from a deaf brave who misunderstood his chief's orders to surrender. The 7th Cavalry, 
That was the reconstructed regiment lost by George Armstrong Custer, opened fire on the Sioux. The local chief, Bigfoot, was shot in cold blood as he recuperated from pneumonia in his tent. Others were cut down as they tried to run away. And when the smoke cleared, almost all of the 300 men, women, and children were dead. This massacre marked the last showdown between Native Americans and the United States. It was nearly 400 years after Christopher Columbus first contacted the first Americans. The 1890 United States Census declared the frontier officially closed. That concludes our three-part series on Closing the Frontier. I'm your host, Mr. Nasosi, and I thank you for taking time out of your day to join us for another episode of Print the Legend, a podcast for U.S. history students where we look at the stories that made up America and the stories that America made up. Coming up in our next series, The American Empire, as Manifest Destiny and the Frontier close on the West Coast, America's eyes and sights are set now on the Pacific and the Caribbean. American imperialism at the height of the 20th century. A new series on Print the Legend. We'll see you next time.